Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we are very excited and proud to have hosted our first SALT conference in New York two weeks ago at the new Javits Center expansion, which went very well and we're proud to say uh, didn't also result in, in much COVID spread that we saw. So sort of a win-win on that front. Uh, but we were very that, excited that to have done that of. conference. That you that, know that of. That we know of. That okay, we know of. It may, we we no may or may not edit this news. part out of the, <laughs> the SALT talk. But um, our goal at these conferences and our goal on these talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And in my mind, there's no bigger topic for us to discuss than the climate crisis. And we're very excited today to convene what I think is a fantastic SALT talk coming up on how do we address the climate crisis, not just for altruistic reasons and not just with altruistic motivations, but how do we invest in technologies that are gonna help us solve this crisis and, and take us to a, sort of a better future as it relates to climate and our planet. And our two guests today are Albert Winger from Union Square Ventures and Sarah Sklarsik from Voyager. I'll read you a little bit about uh, each one of our guests and then I'll let Anthony have them explain their backgrounds in their own words. But Albert is the managing partner at Union Square Ventures. Uh, before joining USV, Albert was the president of Delicious uh, through the company's sale to Yahoo and an angel investor in many companies, including Etsy, Tumblr. Uh, he graduated from Harvard College with a degree in economics and computer science and holds a PhD in information technology from MIT. Sarah Sklarsik is a managing partner at Voyager, which is a venture capital firm she co-founded that invests in early stage climate technology companies. She's a longtime operator and investor in sustainability oriented technology companies. Uh, she co-founded Get Around in 2009 and prior to uh, work with pioneering biotechnology company, Modern Meadow. Uh, Sarah graduated also from Harvard College uh, with a focus on bioethics and I know she studied uh, at MIT about uh, carbon atmospheric carbon removal. And she holds that master's degree from MIT uh, and today lives in New York City, along with Albert. Uh, hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Uh, Anthony's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I will turn it over to Anthony to begin the interview. Well, first of all, John, thank you. Uh, Sarah and Albert, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and the work you're doing is so important. So I want to start with your backgrounds, if you don't mind. Let's start with Sarah first. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your background, Sarah, and uh, your passion, why you took your career in this direction. And then obviously the same question for you, Albert. Certainly. So I am a climate tech entrepreneur turned investor, uh, starting off with co-founding GetAround, which is a pioneering company in the sustainable transportation space. Uh, and then working as the founding business director for Modern Meadow, which was the first lab-grown meat and lab-grown leather company. So really working on how do we reduce emissions from uh, livestock uh, production and the materials we use, double-digit contributor uh, in terms of percentage overall of greenhouse gases to climate change. Um, and for me, this work is really about recognizing that, you know, now is the time where we either uh, change course for the planet um, or we don't. We don't have another shot at this. And so really the work in the future came about as a recognition that this is what I'm going to spend the rest of my life on. Um, and a recognition that scalable technology companies uh, can have a tremendous impact on solving all the problems necessary solving these problems. So not everything on, that we need to do on climate is a technology problem. There are government regulatory, social components to solving all these problems, but we also can't do it without technology. Albert, I wanna ask you the same, same question. Sure. So uh, Union Square Ventures, historically, we've invested in all things digital, um, but um, because we've been thinking so much about the digital transformation, I've been thinking about what does the digital transformation mean for the world at large? And so I've been writing a book, you can read online, it's called The World After Capital, <clears throat> and it is focused on this idea that the biggest scarcity today in the world is attention. 
Like, what is it that we're paying attention to? And I would get up on stage and say, attention is scarce, attention is scarce. And example number one is the climate crisis. It's huge and not enough people are paying attention to it. And then at one point I was like, well, yeah. And I should be listing myself as exhibit A. Like, here I am, an investor. I'm investing all these things digital and I'm not paying enough attention to the climate crisis. And so once I started to dig in, I was like, oh my Lord, we are so much deeper into this. It's so much more imminent and it's so much more dramatic than anybody seems to think. Um, you know, and sometimes people make fun of like Greta Thunberg saying, you know, the world's going to end. No, the world's really going to end. <laughs> the world as we know it is going to end. And so as Sarah put it, we have one more shot at this. I mean, we've been talking about this since the 70s and people have been ignoring it. And now we've got sort of a last ditch effort. And uh, I think there's going to be, you know, tremendous investment opportunities coming out of this. That's why we started to raise a fund and we now have a dedicated climate thesis fund. Uh, and it's also going to require Herculean efforts, uh, not just by the private sector, but also by government. But it's exciting. It's scary and exciting at the same time. Well, you know, the, the, my personal bias is, you know, I'm, I believe the fund is the right way to go, frankly, because we can put money into non-for-profits and we can do things like that. But I think uh, the four of us know that when people are incentivized by profit to solve something, you seem to get the greatest efficacy. So I have absolutely no problem with that. So let's talk a little bit about the fund. So, so Sarah, tell us about the genesis of the fund and uh, the, the focus of the fund. And then obviously I have a curious question. Can we remove carbon from the atmosphere in a fast enough rate to save the planet? Yeah, question. So first I'll, I'll start by talking off, uh, about the origin of the fund. So Voyager is a uh, $70 million early stage fund uh, investing in North America and Europe, uh, looking to back the 30 best climate next years. Uh, Co-founder of the fund is Sarah Peterson, who brings a tremendous background as an economist and a policy designer, uh, specifically climate policies through her work at the Obama White House, the International Energy Agency, uh, and on through uh, deploying billions of dollars into renewable energy um, projects. Um, carbon removal. So that is, uh, in my mind, the toughest unsolved part of the picture of how we decarbonize. So the world needs to get to net zero uh, by 2050, ideally sooner. Frankly, we need to get there sooner. And the job doesn't start there. We actually have to go net negative. We have to remove some of the historical emissions uh, and actually a lot of the historical emissions up to a trillion tons of CO2 uh, over the next 80 years, which is a really uh, massive amount of carbon. Uh, it's a huge amount of material. It's been described, this challenge has been described as running the oil and gas industry in reverse. Uh, and, and what that progression looks like is we start now. Um, there's a couple companies that are in the space. There's not many companies operating at any sort of meaningful scale. And we see what works and we advance those learning curves. Uh, and we, we work uh, up through larger and larger commercial scale so that in maybe 10 years, we can be at uh, cumulatively removing a gigaton. That's a billion tons of CO2 per year. Uh, up to what the IPCC would be, which is uh, 10 to 20 gigatons per year by mid-century. And, and, you know, this is something I think a lot of people don't recognize about stabilizing the atmosphere. It's not, um, you know, a set of actions we take for the next 10 years and then we stop, or a set of actions we can start in 30 years. This is a crisis. The climate is unstable. It, it will continue to get less stable until we intervene enough to, to stabilize the atmosphere and solve the problem. So there's no partial solution that will work. And there's no solution, there's really no credible path to stabilizing the atmosphere at this point that does not involve large amounts of carbon removal. Now, as Albert said, it's scary, but it's also exciting. This is a massive business opportunity. You know, For all the entrepreneurs out there, this is a chance to save the world and a chance to build an incredible um, this is projected to be a trillion dollar a year industry that is net new. There are almost no companies operating at scale right now. So this, this growth in this industry will come from 
companies that are, are being formed now or have yet to be formed. There's a bunch of different um, ways we can tackle the removal part, right? So um, there's what people call DAC, direct air capture, where you're sort of building physical machines. Um, then, of course, there's also nature. So, you know, trees are good at removing carbon. So if we grow more trees, if we stop chopping down the one we have, um, that's a way. There's, you know, additional fast-growing biomass algae. Um, we're looking at a deal right now with a company that grows algae in the desert um, using seawater. So um, it's going to take a lot of shots on gold to get this right. I think it's very important, though, to say that just because there are work, there's work happening on carbon removal doesn't mean we don't need to work on emissions. Like we need to work really, really hard on emissions. So it's one of those, it's and not or. <laughs> like we need to drastically cut emissions and we need to do removal. Um, so uh, I think that's important. And, and I wanted to come back for a moment just to the role of government on some of these things, right? So um, I do believe very much that the private sector will develop amazing technologies, but the rate of adoption of these technologies will depend largely on what government does. And so if you look at China, for example, they basically said, look, you can't put an internal combustion engine on the car, period, on the road, right? Like it, you're not going to get it registered, end of story. So that gets a massive tilt to EV and we need to do the same. We have to set a date, you know, and should be a soon date and be like, by this date, you will no longer get a license or registration for this kind of car. And that's going to get the EV industry going really, really, really fast. So it's one thing to be excited about Riven getting its funding in Tesla. And I have several Teslas and I love it. Um, but the rate at which these technologies are going to get adopted will be a direct function of government policy. And so we're going to need both. And to me, this sort of is it one or the other on tech versus and private entrepreneurship versus government is, I think, really boring and distracting. If you think about the car, right? Um, Early car regulation was like, oh, you have to have somebody with a red flag walking in front of the car and a car can't go faster than a horse-drawn carriage. And that was obviously aimed at slowing the whole thing down. But we wouldn't have cars today and they wouldn't have had such a massive impact if we didn't have good regulation. Like, let's all agree that we're going to drive on the right side of the road or maybe if you're in some weird country on the left side of the road. Like, you, like certain things need government to, to get done. And so um, I'm going to leave you with one more analogy to this. What we really need, actually is the kind of mobilization that we had during World War II. Um, because that's really what it's going to take. Like we could decarbonize the grid in the US in a five to 10 year span. And that's not crazy, but it would require government to really step up. And it would actually be awesome, right? Because who wants to be inhaling all that stuff that comes out of coal-fired power plants? Like nobody wants to do that. Who wants to be smelling the cities like when the taxis go by? Like it's nice to have EVs. So like, to me, the thing here is people are always like, oh, but this is gonna be costly. What like the alternative is the thing that's really costly and the future that we could have is like this awesome future. So why aren't we stepping on the gas? Like what's preventing us from stepping on the gas? Um, so I'm gonna answer it as a lay person that's not scientifically gifted. In fact, anything I would call myself scientifically incompetent. I think there's a lack of awareness. I, I literally think that you're, at the tip of the spear, both of you, frankly, were at the tip of the spear, but the average person, they grew up in a carbon admitting car, in a carbon admitting house, they turn on their television, the electricity is coming from some level of carbon admission. And so they think it's okay, they think it's part and parcel of life, and they're not fully understanding the long-term consequences. So I guess it's a question for both of you, how do you wake those people up? You, you both have had eureka or aha moments in your life uh, where you've said, okay, whoa, this is way bigger, way deeper of a problem. You know, Aaron Sorkin always tries to lace it into his plays and into his screenplays, the damage that's out there. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I'll bring up my mom. She's 84. I think she was watching Jeff Daniels on one of Aaron Sorkin's uh, television series. She's like, I think the carbon situation is like really bad. I'm like, what are you talking about? My, she got it from Aaron Sorkin. You know, the point is, how do you get it into yeah, the a, main? How do you get it into the mainstream? It's a really important question, Sarah. What's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, different different people respond to different ways. You know, let me learn the facts and come to my you know conclusion. For a lot of people, maybe most people, it's storytelling. 
Uh, it's understanding how this is affecting other people and how it's going to affect me. Um, so I would love for more Aaron Sorkins to step up and tell these stories. But, uh, you know, the, the climate crisis is rapidly um, shifting from something that affects some people somewhere to all people everywhere in a very real and tangible way. I mean, California is now on fire permanently. You know, Australia, Australia saw uh, levels of fire. Um, you know, large parts of the country are now flooding, 100-year floods every two to three years. Uh, so there are stories to tell, and I think more and more people will have a personal, firsthand experience uh, of the fact that the planet is no longer stable. Um, you know, that's the world we're in. I, I think, aside from storytelling, uh, I think people are going to recognize that the systemic impacts of an unstable climate are also affecting them personally. And, and there are, again, stories to be told about the systemic level impacts. So everyone who has a house by the beach, I'm sorry, your house won't be able to get flood insurance anymore because the floods are just inevitable at this point. Uh, you know, nobody will be able to build new buildings in Miami soon. Um, we all need to wake up and step up because uh, this is a world we live in and we need to deal with it. So the, the thing that I always do is um, when I have a group in a room, whether it's students or investors or anybody I talk to, is I, I do this little mini survey uh, right on the spot. You know, I sort of say, look, you all know what greenhouse gases are, right? What they do is they trap heat here on Earth that would otherwise go back into space. And I say, let's gonna, we're going to try and estimate how much heat that is, right? And the technical term would be to express it in joule, but nobody knows what a joule is. So I'm like, let's express it in Hiroshima-sized nuclear bombs, right? Okay, it's a bomb that leveled a city, put out a huge amount of heat. Like, how many Hiroshima-sized nuclear bombs worth of heat do you think we're trapping now that we've put up all these greenhouse gases? Like, do you think it's a one per year? Do you think it's one per month? I think it's one per week, you know, one per day, one per hour, one per minute. And I sort of put that up there and, you know, you'll have a room of 70 really smart investors and the numbers will start trickling in like, it's, you know, it's a real-time survey and they'll, they'll congregate like around one per hour or something like that. And I tell people it's four per second. And there's like spit silence, right? Every second of every minute, of every hour of the day, of every day, it's as if we were exploding four Hiroshima-sized nuclear bombs in the atmosphere. And now picture for a moment, like we have alien spaceships hovering above Earth, right? And so are you confirming that we do? Because a lot of people- <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. That would be great because if it were that, we'd be doing something about it, right? right. But it's not like, it's not, if it were alien spaceships dropping four nuclear bombs in the atmosphere, we would drop everything we're doing. It's called Independence Day. It's a pretty good movie, right? right. Um, but- it's not aliens, it's us. And it's not these bright explosions. It's just all the molecules wiggling a little harder. And most of the stuff has been going to the oceans. Like 95% of that heat's been going to the oceans. That's why we don't really feel it yet. But the physics of this, you know, the physics of this makes the physics like of COVID look like a walk in the park. Because there we have all the tools and it's a small thing that we know how to do something about. But here the physics are, it's like aliens trying to annihilate us, except it's us ourselves. So I think I think it's well said. We got to get more of that information out there. I don't want to hog up all the airtime. John is uh, dying to ask a question, but I got to ask you both one final question before I turn it over to John. And again, I want you to leave because I'm I'm too short, Sarah, to see the glass anything other than half full. So when I'm looking at the glass, even if there's a drop of water, it looks pretty full to me. So leave me with something optimistic about where we are and what we can do to change this. And, uh, and then we'll finish off with you, Albert. And then I'll let John answer. But, but just do me a favor. Don't say, oh, that's a great question, John Darcy, or something like that. <laughs> like when I'm done talking, I don't want to hear that, okay? I'll put both of you on mute. But go ahead, Sarah. Leave yeah. me with something optimistic. So the, the optimism here is, you know, we are living in the, the sort of uh, alien invasion scenario that, that Albert described in that, the fate of the world's at stake here, and we're all alive at this time, but the future is not inevitable. We can change it, we can turn the ship around, and we know, what, we know what we need to do. It's not a mystery. How scary would it be if the world was heating up and we had no idea how to stop it? We know how to stop it. We decarbonize systemically every 
machine that runs on fossil fuel. So that's exciting, right? We all have the ability to literally save the planet. And if you're an entrepreneur, what better time to build an impactful business that also can capitalize on the fact that there will be trillions of dollars of new infrastructure built and new products and services that again are better, are more sustainable, are healthier, are cleaner, and are safer. That's a world I want to live in. Yeah, lots of stuff to be optimistic about. Um, cost of um, battery storage down by 90% over the last 10 years. Cost of photovoltaics down by 90% over the last 10 years. We have we know how to build nuclear reactors. We just need to have the political will to build them. Um, we should be exploring geothermal much more. We have a ton of incredible entrepreneurs coming into the space. You know, when I talk to people 10 years ago, when I was talking to people who had a success, what they wanted to do next, they wanted to work on online education, online healthcare. Today, successful people, they want to work on climate. Um, and then there's lots of money coming into the space. Look, you know, you've got the early funds like um, Voyager and ourselves, but then you have, you know, General Atlantic with a $4 billion climate fund, TPG with a $5 billion climate fund, Brookfield with an $11 billion climate fund. Um, so there's a lot of capital coming. We, we, we welcome everybody who's coming to the space because it will take, um, a lot more than it's currently pointed at it. And as Sarah said several times, this is going to be a trillion dollar market. And it's going to be a trillion dollar global market, uh, which is an extraordinary entrepreneurial opportunity. So if you put all this together, we have the technologies, we have money coming in, we have talented entrepreneurs. That's lots of reason to be optimistic. All right, I'm turning it over to John. All right. Time for the good questions portion of the program. I feel, I feel Sarah's going to weaken and say that's a good question. But, but Wanger, I'm looking right at you. You're a baby boomer. Don't do that to me. Okay, okay go ahead, well, John. No deal. Okay, deal. I, can, I can feel Sarah weakening in solidarity with her generation. <laughs> All right. Let me, let me start with you, Albert. And it's a question that you've uh, I've studied a lot of your interviews and, and writings in preparation for this podcast. And one thing you, you talked about sort of earlier in the show, that debate between government or, you know, private sector, which one is going to really drive change. And it really has to be a concert between the two of them. But also, I think your commentary around, uh, you know, profit motive and things like that is interesting and and uh, an economic self-interest. I think, you know, there's a lot of skeptics and cynics around ESG, around, you know, is is, is it really going to be this big movement that people are anticipating or is most of the investment decisions related to climate, related to economic self-interest in some way? Uh, how much of it is economic self-interest from whether it be large institutions or investment firms whose portfolios might be affected by climate change? And how much is it just uh, an awakening of altruism and, and ESG orientation from people around the world? Well, I, I think this is a massive commercial opportunity, and we raised our fund as a straight-up venture fund, so we don't even do any ESG reporting. Um, I, I guess, personally, I'm actually a bit of an ESG skeptic. I think there's a lot of people like, oh, let's, you know, here's a new way of asset gathering. Let's slap the ESG label on it, and we'll get a bunch of new assets. Uh, so to me, you know, I think people are going to want to build big businesses here, in part because it's a big opportunity because part, they want to make a lot of money. And I think that is totally okay. That's great. I think that's wonderful. Um, I'm a little nervous about, you know, um, the return of various forms of greenwashing and the various forms of like, you know, let's put the ESG label on it and then don't care what we actually invest in. And, and you know, there's a way of measuring anything if you want to measure it, you know, if you, if you're incentivized to measure it in a particular way, you know, you could get results. Um, so I think we have to look out for that and we need to set clear standards of what actually is considered a reduction in carbon. And that can't be sort of very hand wavy. That has to be, that really has to be carbon that's not going in the atmosphere or carbon that's coming down from the atmosphere and staying in the ground for a while. So right. I think there's a bunch of cleanup required of the sort of methodologies and we have to make sure that people aren't incentivized to essentially lie about what they're doing. Right. Sarah, do you have a take on sort of performative ESG and and greenwashing and, and how much uh, excitement there is around potential profits for investing in early stage climate tech? Yeah. Well, no surprise. I'm not a fan of greenwashing. I don't think it does anyone <laughs> any good. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is, there's no question that for uh, tracking of carbon reductions, uh, 
gold standard verification and ongoing monitoring, right? If we don't have that, then we're all sort of out in the weeds, out in the wilderness. But if I could extend uh, Mark Andreessen's uh, software is eating the world uh, declaration a little bit, tech is eating the world. So these are no longer niche markets and niche applications. Uh, every company that has pledged to go net zero and actually means it is going to have to go net zero. They're going to have to fundamentally business, how they make everything, how they buy everything, how they sell everything, how they track everything. Um, and for anything that they can't ultimately get out of their supply chain, they're going to have to purchase additional verifiable carbon removal. Um, and again, this is a massive opportunity. I mean, this, these are trillion dollar markets in transportation and food and materials and uh, what will be one in carbon removal. Um, and so for folks building businesses right now, really thinking critically about how do we full monitoring and tracking um, is a great opportunity. We're seeing incredible entrepreneurs and, and folks leaving uh, great jobs at you know, Google's and, and Facebook and, and, and other companies like that who want to build in climate and they're taking their um, you know, how databases work and how supply chains work and they are building these solutions. So that's something to be both very optimistic about as a person in the world today, but certainly as an investor in the space, the talent wants to work on climate to a founder of a billion dollar company who uh, you know, exited his company, they IPO'd and what he wants to work on next is climate. To, Albert, to pick up on, to pick yeah, up on this point for, for a moment that Sarah just made, um, I don't think enough investors recognize that the commitments that have already been made add up to a huge demand, a huge demand for this technology. Whether it's the commitments that countries have made as part of the Paris Accord or the commitments that individual companies have made. Now, you could be a total cynic and believe that they're all going to whiff on their, on their targets. And I guess that's a fair position to take. But if you believe that they're going to implement a fraction of the commitments they've already made, the markets for these companies are phenomenally large. Right. Yeah. Just, just to add to that, um, these are better products and services. Decarbonized products and services are better. Um, fossil fuels are tremendously inefficient. In addition to being toxic and polluting, they waste 40% of the energy in a combustion process on, on waste heat. Um, people prefer electric vehicles. And so you're seeing companies like Ford make the largest they just announced an $11 billion investment into EVs, the largest investment they've ever made, because they understand that this is the future. Companies, you know, big companies may not be first. Startups generally will be first. You know, Tesla is a great example there. But um, the inflection points are being reached in, in, in transportation, environment, in energy production, where better products and services will also have their own momentum in, in transitioning to a decarbonized economy. A lot of times when you engage with people who are skeptics of you know, climate change or the urgent need to cut emissions, they point to the fact that uh, the United States really isn't the biggest or most egregious polluter out there. You have countries like India, China that we don't have control over that are polluting. So why are we going to so aggressively you know, cut emissions when really maybe the house is already on fire and the horse is out of the barn or whatever uh, saying you want to use and we should really just be focusing on how can we roll back the clock how can we engage in sort of moonshot technologies like carbon capture or other things um, to sort of you know create a better climate using using technology how would you respond to that uh sarah about you know whether we should just focus on the technology piece or also focus on cutting emissions i imagine we should do both but but how do you how would you respond to skeptics yeah. So, I mean, I don't spend my time trying to convince like hardcore climate denialists. I think that's not a good use of my time. I'd rather build solutions. Um, but in response to your question, this is this is a policy and technology path forward. There, there's really no way to get where we need to go with, you know, just pulling one of the levers we have available. Pulling all the levers, bringing all of our ingenuity to the table, all of our resources to the table. And if we do that, we got a shot. In the U.S. to step back because other countries aren't stepping forward, I think would be a huge mistake. Um, I think the, in the better moments, this country is defined itself by global leadership. What more significant problem to take global leadership on than the future of the planet? 
And frankly, it's good business to do that. You know, more moral questions aside, and also the, the practicality of the fact that we all breathe the same air, we all live by the same ocean and are toxic, like we're gonna suffer the consequences too. Um, and that the practical time we have does not allow us to wait 10 or 20 years and see what China does. But it's also a, it's a, it's a business opportunity. If we wait uh, on building out, you know, the, the, the forefront of technology on electric vehicles, on batteries, on charging stations, on grid storage, on nuclear power, on enhanced geothermal, if we wait on that, we will be left behind. Right. Albert, yeah, I want I mean, to switch. It, yeah, it, go, it, go ahead, Albert. No, I want to stick with this for a moment yep. because I think there's two, two really important things to recognize. One is, of course, China today is a bigger polluter than the U.S., but 50% of the carbon's up there was put us, up by us. This is a cumulative problem. This is not a point-in-time problem. That's number one. Number two, um, this is a huge emerging market. Why would we cede this market to other countries? I mean, one of the strangest things to me are how people can be China hawks and also be like, oh, the climate thing we shouldn't worry about. China is the global leader in providing the enabling technologies on climate. They make more than half the world's PV. They make more than half the world's batteries, like by a wide margin. They have one of the largest rare earth mining operations in the world. I mean, it's just, a, to me, a completely crazy idea. Like, you could be completely not believing that any of this is real, and you could be still be like, oh, my God, like, we do not want to be left behind on this. Like, even if you didn't believe it was true. So it's just a completely incongruous position in my mind that some people take here. Right. Now, Albert, I want to follow up with you. You've uh, written a lot about universal basic income and this idea of the job loop, which I think is fascinating. And it's something that I've always felt, but I couldn't exactly express it as eloquently as you have in some of your writings, which is the idea that a lot of this hamster wheeling that we do in society is to create products that people can consume for the sake of it. And, and it just creates this this cycle of consumption that's not really productive for humanity and doesn't really make us happy as people, where you're a fan of universal basic income, in part because it removes that economic incentive uh, in terms of how people spend their time, which I think is counterintuitive to the way a lot of people think about universal basic income, or at least the detractors say that, oh, if people are getting you know a, a living wage from the government, they're not going to be incentivized to do work. They're going to sit on their couch and they're going to eat potato chips and, and not contribute to society. Whereas you believe, and I believe, that it'll actually free people up to focus more on things they're passionate about and more mission-oriented projects. When I think about myself, I have four young kids. My real goal financially for myself is to create a life for my children where they can focus on things that aren't profit-driven, which is what you're talking about on a mass scale for society. How does el eliminating that sort of economic incentive and economic desperation help create a better economy and a better world? Well, I mean, you know, we have some people who are essentially UBI recipients today. They're people who have retired, right? So people who have retired and who have a nice pension, they can do what they want. And what, what do we see? People, A, they move to places they want to live. Also, they move to places where it's cheaper to live. And B, they often get engaged in community. They get in, 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 engaged in passion projects that could be helping restore the environment, that could just be, you know, being active in the local community. So we already see how this works for some people, right? And so the idea behind UBI is just, you know, let's let's reap the benefits of automation broadly. Um, you know, we just invested in a new robotics company at, at USV. Um, we want more robots. Like there's so many jobs that a robot will do great, you know, including eventually driving a truck, but, you know, putting stuff on the shelf in the supermarket or, you know, harvesting or being, you know, working in a nuclear facility where you don't want a human because you can't touch the stuff, right? So, so we want those benefits. Uh, automation has been good to us. It's been great to us. If it weren't for automation of most of the, you know, agricultural processes, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd be working the fields just to barely feed ourselves, right? So the point of this is, I think we need forward-looking policies, right? Um, we don't need to be trapped in a, sort of a system that worked wonderfully. By the way, don't get me wrong. That was a great system. It got us a huge amount of progress, but it's kind of like it's run its course. And so it's time to invent something new and some be bold about the new thing that we're inventing, not be incremental. You know, I think a lot of this, you know, what people call populism, why is populism happening? Because the benefits of a lot of the stuff that's come around has accrued to very few people. And a lot of people are feeling, I think, rightly left behind. 
And then they hear politicians talk about, well, we're going to make this little incremental change here and this little incremental change over there and all will be good. And people are like, what are you talking about? You've been saying that for 20 years and it's only getting better for you. So we need bold, forward-looking policies. And we got to stop like worrying about like some of the old stuff. And just, I think that's an exciting opportunity for all of us. Right. Yeah. I think nuance is lost a lot in the commentary today related to what people deem as socialism versus capitalism, whereas you need to infuse, uh, you know, elements from each system uh, that, that work well, even though I, I go hate further. Those, yeah. Both of those systems are fundamentally tied to the idea that we live in an industrial age. We no longer live in an industrial age. Right. And as long as we're tied to this idea, we will be grinding ourselves down in endless discussions of capitalism versus socialism. It's, it's, the, it's destructive and boring and prevents us from inventing the new thing, which we desperately ought to be doing and where we have all the technology to go invent the new thing. Right. Uh, Sarah, you, you're on the board of XL Fleet, which is a leader in, in fleet electrification for commercial vehicles and municipal vehicles. You founded Get Around, another mobility company. So I want to talk specifically about mobility for a little while. And I'm sure Albert will, will want to weigh in on this as well. But uh, how successful have we been to this point in electrifying some of these fleets and making progress in in greening our mobility a little bit more. Anthony was teasing me in the opening of this about the fact that I'm working from home and uh, and he is in the office today. Uh, but he took his you know Cadillac uh, SUV into the city and and emitted carbon. Whereas you know working from home during the pandemic, we've certainly uh, experienced a, a reduction in, in carbon emissions. But in general, what what kind of progress have we made on on mobility on on uh, having greener mobility solutions, both commercially and have him, have him, Sarah, before you answer the question, though, have him tell you about his ranch uh, in Montana that he's got like, <laughs> you know, carbon admitting horses and all kinds of things going on out there. Go ahead, Sarah. Sorry. Well, the, the ranch sounds lovely. And uh, my, my approach is less to uh, to carbon shame people and more to focus on how we actually solve the problem. There we go. Uh, thank thank you, Sarah. Them. Thank you, because I'm a I'm a carbon hypocrite. You know, mm -hmm. I want to fix the environment, but I just visited my kids in LA and I board that commercial aircraft. I feel guilty about it, but I still want to see the kids. So I, I am a carbon hypocrite, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, so as long as you vote for candidates who support, you know, climate action and can decarbonize us. It's a big, it's a big thing. You know, I was actually with, I was actually with Governor Schwarzenegger and said, you know, we no longer have a party. I was with Governor Schwarzenegger this week because the Republican party is out to lunch when it comes to the environment, which is the existential crisis, the real crisis for that matter of our time. They got to get with it. But I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. You could try to feather the ranch into your answer, though, too, if you don't mind. Go ahead. So, uh, yeah, on transportation, we have not made the progress that we, you know, ideally would have made by now. Um, EVs are still a tiny percentage in the U.S. of uh, vehicles sold per year. You know, we're ballpark around 1%. Uh, the number is climbing steeply. Um, so the trajectory forward is very exciting. Um, automakers have really announced for the last time they're going to internal combustion engine. And these dates are reasonably soon. Uh, so the writing is on the wall for the death of the internal combustion engine. Uh, some countries have actually announced uh, that after certain dates, some of these as soon as four years from now, no new ICE vehicles can be sold. So the industry knows it has to shift and that shift is already happening quickly and it's gonna accelerate. So that part is very exciting. Um, you know, XL Fleet is I think a great example of how we can push that date of when we get to, uh, you know, entire fleets of uh, non-emitting or lower emitting vehicles sooner. So their uh, technology can work with existing vehicles and new vehicles, even if those vehicles are not otherwise uh, electric vehicles, which is very exciting. Uh, Get Around was an early leader in uh, more efficient transportation uh, through car sharing. Um, so the statistics are if you share cars rather than uh, own your own car, you actually use it less. You really only use it when you need it and you walk or bike the rest of the time. Um, and there's tremendous opportunity in this sort of non-vehicle space as well, shifting to uh, e-bikes, uh, electric three-wheelers, there's actually a lot of um, rapid advancements happening in the developing world, uh, given the reliance on, on bikes and three-wheelers there um, towards electrification. It's a tremendous opportunity around the vehicles, 
the batteries, the recycling, the charging, the fleet management, you know, there's software companies to be built, there's hardware companies to be built. Um, aviation, aviation, we're nowhere where we need to be. There, there's, you know, virtually zero non-emitting planes, but um, we have, I think, reached the point where the technologies for light sort of short haul electric aviation are becoming feasible, economically feasible, and even advantageous in that the maintenance and, and cost of ownership is, is, is less for uh, an electric aircraft versus a, a combustion engine uh, aircraft. And then for the long haul, we need to look at solutions like, you know, hydrogen fuel cells and, and renewable fuels. Um, but we know these things are possible. So uh, it's a great time to be an entrepreneur in the space. We're not where we need to be, but we are starting to get line of sight there. And some parts of uh, sustainable transportation are moving very, very quickly. So it's a tremendously exciting time to be an investor in um, transportation and, and specifically around vehicles and fleets. Something really important that Sarah just said is TCO, total cost of ownership, is already lower for EVs in most applications today. So fleet applications, for example, um, like think local delivery fleets, you want EVs today for strictly economic reasons. And that's, again, you know, you asked earlier, Anthony, what makes me optimistic? The fact that we are at that point makes me optimistic because it means that that adoption is going to get driven um, and it doesn't even require government action. Now, I would love government action to speed it up significantly, but the TCO alone will drive this today. So, Albert, what are some other examples of technologies that you guys are excited about, both in terms of their impact and, and potentially you know, being lucrative from an investment perspective that you guys are investing in at an early stage? Well, I'll pick up on something else Sarah said, which is um, you know, the um, vehicles in places like India. So we just announced an investment in an Indian company called Revos. And what they do is they make an operating system that makes it easy to build electric two-wheelers and three-wheelers. Because if you think about it, those are really kind of like moving computers. You've got a computer that controls the power flow from the battery to the engine and regenerative braking and all those things. And they're, um, you know, they require both hardware and excellent software. And they're also building the fastest growing charging network in India for two-wheelers and three-wheelers. Uh, so EV adoption generally, I think, is a big opportunity on which a lot needs to be done. Um, we have invested in various drawdown um, things. So you know, better forest monitoring, for example, so you can incentivize forest owners to not cut down their trees and, and ideally plant new ones, uh, a company called NCX. Um, we have recently invested in a nuclear reactor company um, that makes a guaranteed safe by design reactor. Uh, and so uh, we are building a broadly diversified portfolio of technologies and approaches for emissions reduction and drawdown. Right. It's uh... It's all fascinating. Sarah, I want to talk about animal products for a second. And, and just to clarify on, on the ranch, it's in Southwest Colorado. We raise our own meat. We try to, you know, uh, do things sustainably there. So, so don't uh, listen to Anthony's slander, but animal products in general account uh, for a huge volume of carbon emissions. And especially as, as the global population becomes more affluent, uh, certainly there's more meat eaters on the planet. And, and that's a Sort of a crisis that we're encountering. Just so you know, that was like a very elitist alibi, and neither (laughs) neither of these two people bought it, but it's fine. Okay, but you know what I like about Sarah though, she's not into carbon shaming, but I've already flattened you, so I don't know what was the question, John. Go ahead. So the question is, you know, whether it be from meat for consumption, whether it be leather products. You talked about earlier, Sarah. Uh, there are a lot of exciting projects in the field of programmable biology, if you will, that are helping wean us off of animal products. We had several speakers at our SALT New York conference talking about programmable biology, including somebody like Jason Kelly from Ginkgo Bioworks, who's doing research, everything ranging from uh, industrial uses to to things like food. But what does the future hold in terms of the future of food, the future future of industrial and consumer products, and how we can wean ourselves off of relying on animal products for everything. Yeah. So um, animal products are a, a big part of global climate picture. So livestock responsible for, you know, ballpark 18% of global emissions, both directly and indirectly. Uh, leading cause of deforestation of places like the Amazon is people cutting down trees to grow more feed for cattle or grazing land for cattle. So it's not uh, a part of the problem that we can ignore. I don't think the world will completely stop eating meat. 
uh, animal-based meat in the time frame we have on climate, you know, ballpark the next 80 years. But I think we can dr dramatically reduce the amount of animal products that we get from animals and the uh, carbon emissions intensity of those products. And I think we can provide alternatives, in some cases, biologically identical products, the exact same product that just did not come from the suffering of an animal and the destruction of the planet. And that seems like a good thing. That seems like something we're doing. Um, I think a great example there is there's an alternative dairy company uh, called Perfect Day. They actually just announced a, a big round and I think some investment from Leonardo DiCaprio. Some brilliant, uh, very young founders that you know I, I've been privileged to know since basically day one of that company. That company um, does a microbial fermentation process similar to brewing beer, but instead of making beer, you produce exactly the same milk proteins that a cow makes, except you make them in a big tank, not in a cow and, and, and not in a feedlot in a factory farm. Um, and so they can make products like you know ice cream and cream cheese and all the things we love because frankly, they're delicious without animal suffering and environmental harm. Um, and there's the potential to make anything we get from the natural world or from animals through biotechnology, uh, right? It's really just technology plus biology. We can make all the things. It's a question of when can we make them uh, at unit economics that makes sense. And that's my job as an investor uh, is to really look at, you know, when are we reaching the inflection points? But frankly, it's an amazing time. Um, synthetic biology and biotechnology have really benefited from these falling cost curves and increasing capabilities and advances like, um, you know, CRISPR-based genetic engineering in, in a build-out of an ecosystem of services uh, like the ones that Dinko provides. So there are contract manufacturers, there are um, organism designers, um, there are uh, companies that do very cheap genetic sequencing and synthesis. And just like somebody building an IT company, right, doesn't necessarily want to build the computer hardware and operate the servers, right? They depend on an ecosystem of other uh, partners and, and, and service providers. Synthetic biology and biotechnology are rapidly approaching that sort of more mature ecosystem where people can actually build efficiently um, companies that make really, really valuable products. Things like leather and meat and dairy are, are, are massive global markets and really valuable beloved products why not make them better and healthier and also hey we can explore even more capabilities so you know potentially if you make leather from scratch you can make a piece 100 feet long or ultra stretchy you're never going to be able to get that from a cow so we, we actually do have a path here to make really um more exciting products that are better suited to what people actually want and what people actually use and i think that's fantastic um you know a, a good small example is Violins used to be strung with cat gut. I don't know anyone who's bemoaning the fact that violins are no longer strung with cat gut because now- It's not the same, Sarah, without the cat gut. <laughs> I mean, if it's not an original cat gut, you know, I, I don't. So, you know, I, I, we've done this throughout history. We've always manufactured better products that, that are more efficient, that work better for what we want. Um, and I, you know, I certainly think there's a clear path and a clear need to do that for animal products. Yeah, and, and just a, a note on Perfect Day, we are uh, big fans of the company, investors in the company. Uh, Ryan Pandya is a member of the Salt Young Leaders Circle. Uh, so we are extremely bullish on, on what they're doing and are actually working with them and, and Anthony's son, AJ, who worked at Google and Tesla before uh, becoming sort of uh, uh, his own venture capitalist, is, is helping to incubate a company um, that's leveraging some of the technology that Perfect Day has pioneered in terms of uh, creating sort of uh, biologically created uh, dairy products that, like you said, are, are molecularly identical to the product, but don't rely on the animal to produce them. Um, and, but and, there's, and there's there's yet another benefit to when we get this right, which is so much of our landscape today is planted with things like corn and soy that are boring to look at, bad for the soil, um, take up a huge amount of space solely to feed animals to then make the milk and to make the beef, right? So once we move the beef and milk production into these synthetic biology processes, imagine a future where you go to the Midwest for a safari, right? Because there'll be buffaloes and there'll be this huge landscape and there'll be just, so we have this incredible future. And again, one way to accelerate this is by taking the existing carbon footprint that is attributable to beef and to dairy and actually taxing it into the product, 
right? Because we would look at one thing is one thing is to bring the cost curve of the other thing down. The other is to sort of say, look, these products actually need to be more expensive based on what they do. And by the way, we should be redistributing these taxes, right? You don't want to collect those taxes and make it just more expensive for people who already don't have enough money, right? But but the point is the product itself, you can tilt the balance between the new product and the incumbent product significantly towards the new product. All right. Well, we could have a whole episode on things like nuclear that you touched on, Albert, and, and a variety of other topics we talked about. Maybe we should make I'd be this a series. to do that. That'd yeah, no, I, I would love to do that. And maybe we make this a series. I really enjoyed having you and Sarah on. Um, and, and this is a topic, you know, we sort of have themes that we like to focus on for our conferences, for our SALT talks, and from an investment perspective as well at SkyBridge. So uh, we, we'd love to do more with you guys. And it's been a pleasure having you on. Yeah, it's been great. And you've been asking all the good questions. Thank you very much, Albert. You heard that, Anthony. I've tried not to hear it, but I do, I do have to recognize that you do ask very good questions, John Dorsey, okay? Okay, and right. Sarah yeah, let you off the hook for the carbon-admitting ranch that you have right. and, and the seven-acre estate that you're living on. She it, let you off the hook the on those cows, things. John. It's fine. the cows on the ranch. The cows yeah. are the problem. Trust I'm me. I'm sitting here. When I get off this salt talk, I'll be riding a bicycle here to generate the electricity in the room. But it's fine, John. You're doing just fine. All right. Well, thanks again, Sarah and Albert, for joining us. Again, we hope to do more with you in the future. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Albert Winger from Union Square Ventures and Sarah Sklarsik from Voyager. Just a reminder, if you miss any part of this talk or any of our previous talks, you can access them all on demand on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. Our YouTube channel will also, also host all the panels from our recent SALT conference if you weren't able to attend uh, or you missed any of them because you were busy roaming the halls networking. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at SALT conference. Albert, an early Twitter investor, I might add. But we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these SALT talks, especially around issues related to the climate crisis that we think are extremely urgent and important. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.